And we'll begin reading in verse number 13 of chapter 2. We managed to squeeze a little extra in last week and uh, finish up the remainder of chapter 1 as we got into chapter 2, and we made it all the way down through the first few verses of chapter number 2. But I want to begin reading at verse number 13. We'll read down to verse number 25. Word of God says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Father, we ask that you'd bless this time that we have, that you'd use it for your glory. Lord, we know that if we rightly divide this word of truth, that that will glorify you. So, Father, we pray and ask that you give wisdom and guidance uh, to our thoughts, to our teaching this evening. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we have studied through the past two weeks of First Peter, we have noticed that each of the lessons have basically revealed to us an aspect of our life as Christians. The first lesson revealed to us a little bit about our saved life. In other words, about how we became saved, what being saved means and what being saved does in our lives. Last week we took a little time to look at our sanctified life or our separated life. Uh, you know, when the Lord saves a man, He changes a man. And that happens both positionally and practically. And uh, we understand that inasmuch as the Lord does change a man, we ought to endeavor to embrace that change in our lives. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. He's saying, the Lord saved me to change me. And uh, and I want to be a changed man. I want to live differently. I want to be an example in this lost world. Well, this evening I want us to take a few moments and consider these verses and talk a little bit about our submissive life as Christians. Now I'll go ahead and tell you that when we talk about submission and being submissive, it is not a palatable lesson or truth to our flesh. Uh, the truth is, it is within every one of us, if we're buffeted, to want to buffet right back. If we're reviled, to want to revile right back. If we're railed against, to want to rail right back at them. But what does the example of the Lord Jesus Christ give us? Now, we live in a day where people are perpetually outraged. Am I right? I mean, one thing that's consistent is everybody's mad about something. I do believe we have a civic duty to speak out. I do believe we even have a Christian duty to be sure that our will and uh, that the truths and, and principles of the Word of God are, are duly represented in as much as we are allowed to do that, uh, be that through our voice or through our votes. But we need to understand that anarchy and insurrection is not the will of God. Now I understand that that doesn't appeal. I mean, if there's if there was if there was an amen button, I wouldn't be hitting it right now by saying that. I, I'm aware of that. We like the idea of uh, rushing off in, into the blackest of nights and fighting valiantly to preserve our culture. And trust me, I get it, man. I understand just like anybody else. But what does the Word of God teach us about these matters? Now there are basically three areas that. Peter is going to deal with. He deals with submission in our formal obligations. In other words, the way we conduct ourselves in this world. Then he's going to talk about submission in our family obligations. In other words, 
What is the structure in the home? What pleases God in the home? And then he's going to talk about our fellowship obligations. How ought we to behave ourselves in the church of the living God? So in these three areas, Peter is going to reveal some things to us. Now, we've read some verses that don't get preached on very often uh, as we have begun this, but I want you to consider three areas that Peter says that we are to submit ourselves or, or three uh, stations of life in which God would have us to submit ourselves under the authorities that he's placed in our life. Let me tell you something. Authority is an intrinsic quality of the human experience. That's the way this world is. It, it operates by authority. Do you remember when the man came to Lord Jesus and he wanted him to, to heal his servant? And he said, you know, you don't even have to come under my house. You just speak a word, that'll be enough. And he said, you know, I'm a man of authority. He said, I've got people underneath me and my word is enough for them. And I've got people that are above me and their word is enough for me. And Lord, I know that your word has supreme authority. And if you will command it, it will be so. And the Lord didn't correct him when he said that. Evidently, the Lord endorsed the fact that authority is intrinsic in the human life. Pilate looked at the Lord and said, you know, I have the power over thee. And the Lord looked at him and said, you could have no power over me except it were given thee from above. And I think one of the things, of course, the Lord was saying was that if God hadn't allowed him to be there, he couldn't be there. But I think he was also reminding Pilate that, uh, that he had people he had to answer to as well. And so, Peter gives us three basic areas. I want you to notice them with me. The first thing that Peter reveals to us is that we are to submit ourselves as subjects in the civilization and the environment that we find ourselves in. Now, let me tell you something. We would almost expect that this would be written at a time when peace was reigning all over Christendom. We might imagine this was written at a time uh, when everything was going smooth and everything was going well. That way we could look at it and say, well, yeah, but he didn't have the president we have. Or, yeah, but he didn't have the, the local government that we have. But no, when Peter writes this, the, the fiercest persecution that Christians had ever endured at, up until that point in Rome was taking place. Nero is upon the throne. He is crucifying, uh, beheading, burning, and casting to wild animals, every Christian that he can lay his hands on. And it is in that environment that Peter says this in verse 13, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. The exhortation is clear. The position of the Christian is to be submissive to government inasmuch as it does not infringe on our ability to stand for the Lord. Now, I think most of us know that there are plenty of uh, biblical examples of times when men said it's better to obey God than to obey man. I, and I think Peter understands that as well. In fact, you'll find if you'll look back and check back a little bit, it was Peter himself that had said that. I don't think Peter is looking with regret at that decision. The angel of the Lord had told him to say that, told them to go out into the temple and to continue teaching. But Peter does not want this to be taken as a blanket endorsement for civil disobedience on the part of believers. Can I just say this? Maybe you'll understand a little more what I'm saying when I say it. The Christian does not seek to change things through, through marches, through protests, through petitions. We do it through godly living and through prayer. That's how things get accomplished. I know that's not popular. I know there's people. I'm sure there's people in this room, lots of people in this room, that, that man, they love just let's march on Washington, let's throw all the bums out. And believe me, I get it. You know, I understand. I, I, I'm not, every time, when I go to vote, when I go to, to vote at the voting booth, I, whoever is the incumbent, I vote against. If it was my own daddy, I'd vote against. Because I just figure you got to kick somebody out to get somebody's attention. Amen? I mean, you know, and, and I feel bad. There's probably a lot of good incumbents. They ain't never done anything wrong, but they don't get my vote. I just don't like the way things are running. I don't think it's wrong to uh, use your voting in that way, but we need never mistake the fact, listen carefully, that rulers are set up and put down by a sovereign and thrice holy God. They wouldn't be there if God hadn't put them there. And he mentions first the submission to human laws that we should exercise. We are to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Why? For the Lord's sake. Now, again, I don't think that Peter is saying if they outlaw Bibles, you ought to throw your Bible away. But I don't think anybody with half a brain would believe that is what Peter is saying. What he is saying is this. If there's a speed limit, you ought to try to abide by it. 
He's saying don't litter in the streets. He's saying pay your taxes. Even the Lord left us that example of paying taxes, of uh, of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar. We talk a lot about rendering unto God what is God's, and certainly we should do that. But let us never forget we do have the responsibility to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's as well. All of this hinges on this. He says for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. You know why? Because God has asked you to. Not because the laws are always just, not because it makes sense, not because it's for the betterment of society. He doesn't say we're to submit to every ordinance of man for society's sake. He says we're to submit for the Lord's sake. He says, I'm commanding you to do this. So at those moments, view it as a submission to me, in as much as it's a submission to the authorities. He mentions the submission to human laws, and he mentions the submission to heaven's laws. He says, for the Lord's sake, whether it be unto the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. He shows us the extent to which we are to go. He says that uh, not just the big laws, but the small laws. Not just the president, but your mayor. Now, I understand. I'll go ahead and tell you that I, there's not hardly anybody in local government right now that I like. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. I'm, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I think probably at 28, I'm a little more educated on civic matters than most 28-year-olds are. Most of them are waiting on the new iPhone to come out or something. I don't know. But I don't see any of them when I go for early voting, you know. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm not just shooting off the mouth, you know. I mean, I can't say I know who every single county commissioner and every single educational board member is. Uh, but I do know the people that we have in the basic areas of government. And I'm not, I'm not supremely pleased with any of them. I mean, uh, you know, even and I like old, I like old Jimmy Duncan, you know, John Duncan. He I, he's a good man, but he's been in Washington for how many years, and still there's a lot ain't getting done, you know. And that's all right if you go to his barbecue. I ain't gonna throw my shoe at you. I don't care. But I I, I just mean to say that to say I understand the the disdain that we have and the dissatisfaction. I understand feeling like well let's just throw all the bums out. But guess what? They ain't been thrown out yet. And because they've not, God says, you ought to submit. You ought to submit. We are to submit to the supreme governing authority, but to the subordinate governing authorities. Why? I want you to notice delegates, governors and their delegated authority. What are they there for? They are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Now, again, you have to understand, if 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 Peter was giving a a description of every person in political office, it would be categorically untrue. Because the reality is not everybody that is in public office punishes evildoers and and praises them that do well. In fact, if you were to look around, you'd find that it seems like, and it feels like that seems to be the opposite of what we are seeing day in and day out. But again, driving every bit of this. Well, look at the next few verses. Notice not only the exhortation, the extent we are to submit to, to all of them, whether to the supreme or to the subordinate, and we are to do that because they are placed there for good reasons. But look what it says, the explanation. Number one, in terms of our Lord. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. First off, because it's the will of God that we do that. There's a lot of things you have to pray about, <clears throat> but you don't have to pray about whether it's right to keep a basic, simple law that does not infringe on your personal religious liberty. You don't have to pray. Listen, you don't have to pray about whether it's the will of God that you litter or not. You don't have. To, I, let me tell you, one of the dumbest things I think in society is this wheel tax. How many times did Knox County say we don't want a wheel tax? We don't want a wheel tax. We don't, and they said we're just going to vote on it. We're just going. And if the people don't want it, and the people said we don't want it, and they said, well, we tough. You're getting it anyway. <laughs> but you know what I do? I go and pay my sixty dollars when it comes time. You know why? Because it's the will of God for me to do it. Now again, you have to understand there are times when these seem abstract, but you cannot jerk every tooth out of the head of these truths. You cannot say, well, yeah, but. You know why? Because there's a sovereign God that sits on the circle of the earth. And he knew about that wheel tax. <laughs> sure wish he would have done something about it, but I, I guess it wasn't his will to do that. So I'll pay my $60 and uh, I'll trust that the Lord knows what he's doing. You know why? Because God has, well, notice this. Not only because it's the will of God, but because of the wickedness of men. You know, sometimes God has us obey so that our obedience might be a light in a dark world. 
For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Let it never be said of Bible believers that they are rebellious anarchists. Let it always be said about Bible believers that we're the best Christians that the or that we are the best citizens that our government would allow us to be. There may be times where the laws of the land contradict the laws of the Lord, but we ought not just run around thumbing our nose at the laws of the land because they're not the laws of the Lord. Because the fact is, God sets them up and God sits them down. Notice the next thing he he uh, tells us uh, because of the Lord. He says in terms of our Lord, look at verse number 16. We're to do this in terms of our liberty. He says as free. Now again, understand, he, some of the people he's talking to at this time are not free. Some of them are, are servants, indentured servants. And he's going to address them here in just a moment. But he says, you know why you ought to do this? Because at the end of the day, you have liberty to do it. You know, when Christ set us free, he didn't set us free to... To, uh, to live without license. He set us free to live in liberty. He didn't set us free so that we could become a bunch of rebels. He set us free so that we could be uh, cities set on a hill and a light unto a dark and despairing world. And because of this, we ought to take it very seriously. We ought to see it as our ability to shine a light, to be a testimony. to. A... Now you say, well, preacher, uh, nobody's going to get saved because I go down and, and pay the wheel tax and get my tags renewed. Well... They might not, but I wonder how many people would turn away from Christ when they found out that the Christian, the so-called Christian, uh, was cheating on their taxes. You see, that's the way it works. <laughs> you know, I, the preacher said in revival just back of this, he said, you know, when I was lost, I had all kinds of standards for Christians. If I saw a Christian doing wrong, <laughs> buddy, I let him know about it. He said, I had standards for Christians when I was lost. He said, we ought to have standards for Christians when we're saved. Amen? You better believe they'll notice. You better believe that they'll watch. We're not to use our liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. In other words, we're not supposed to, to hide behind our Christianity and to use it as the uh, reason to foment insurrection and rebellion. Instead, we're to see it as an opportunity to live for the Lord in this world. And then notice what he says in uh, verse number 17, in terms of our liberty, but in terms of our locality. And he pretty much nails everybody down. He says, honor all men. Now that, I, I don't know how you define all, but I define all as all. You know, I mean, it's, this ain't no Bill Clinton hour. It depends on what, what is, is, or what you mean by is, or no. All means all. Honor all men. He says love the brotherhood. What does he mean by the brotherhood? He doesn't mean your local lodge. Amen. He means Christians. He means the church. You ought to love and to honor church. I, listen, I know some churches, and I understand I have differences with other churches, and guess what? They have differences with me. It's one of the things I love about being an independent Baptist is they can do anything that they want. It ain't my business, and I can do anything I want, and it ain't none of their business. And we don't. I'm not yoked to anybody but the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's proper. I think that's scriptural. I think that's appropriate. But I know some, some churches and preachers, they just run around looking for somebody to pick a fight with. I don't believe that is in the spirit of what the Lord Jesus Christ would want. He wants us to love the brotherhood. He says, fear God. And it basically, it divides itself. He says, we must regard those that are around us. We're to honor all men, love the, the brotherhood. And in other words, we're to honor those that do not know the Lord, and we're to love those that do know the Lord. But then he denotes those that are above us, the one on the heavenly throne. He says, fear God. Fear God. This would, and remember, these are public formal obligations. These are things he would have us to do in the eyes of a lost and dying world. Have you ever thought about the fact that Christians may, or that lost people may define what they believe about God by the way you treat God? You know, we complain all the time about how the church has lost respect in society. You hear people complain about it, and I've complained about it. You know, ah, nobody respects the church anymore. Nobody respects. Now, I wonder if nobody respects the church anymore because the church don't respect God anymore. You know, we've treated him lightly. We've made, we've made, it's a casual thing. You know, we just fit him in where he'll fit. You know, but any, any place that might be a little bit of an inconvenience, uh, you know, he's just going to have to take a back seat to our, recreation or our leisure or our work or our, our worldly responsibility, whatever it may be. You know, it might be the world looks at that and says, well, they don't even have very much respect for their own God. Why should we respect their God? He says, fear God. Then he says, honor the king. 
I know we like to think that he's talking about the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And certainly we should honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But I don't think that's what Peter is saying. I think Peter, in the context of dealing with civil duties and responsibilities, he's saying that that man on the throne has been placed there by God. You may not like it. God may not even like what he's doing in society. But he is a small cog and a small gear in the grand scheme of what God is doing. And so you ought to honor him. You know, we, I, 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 and of course, this isn't any kind of secret. I mean, you know, if 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 you're around here very often and and uh, and you don't know this, then you're just not paying attention. That you know, I've not been happy with the president that we've had for the past seven years. Uh, I think he's done a lot of damage to this country. I did not vote for him, um, but he's still my president. I, that, hey, that ain't no easier for me to say than it is for you to hear. But he is my president, and he is our president. And guess what? He didn't take God by surprise. Now you really want to you really want to know what I think? I think God is judging this country. That's what I think. I think there is judicial blindness upon the the nation of America just as surely as there is upon the nation of Israel. And I think that part of that judicial blindness is he is causing men to weep because the wicked are ruling. But guess what? He placed that man there. And he's got a plan and a purpose in it. And part of that plan and purpose is not for me to try to foment insurrection against it. What good has it done anyway? We probably never had a president complained about as much as him, but still he sits in office. Won a second term. Am I right? I, I, don't, I don't know where all these people are that voted for him. I guess a lot of them don't live in Tennessee. A lot of them may be in the graveyard. I don't know. But, but there he is. And God says, like it or not, listen, if you believe John 3.16, then you've got to believe 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. Honor the king. Honor the king. He says, as subjects, we are to submit ourselves. And then notice the next few verses. He says we are to submit ourselves as servants. It's interesting that Peter uses this word because it is not the word that denotes the idea necessarily of a slave. We might think that it would be because... He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Uh, but when Peter uses this term, no doubt it did scoop in those that were in indentured servitude. That was very common in Rome at that time. But he uses sort of a lesser word that denotes the idea of an employee. Now, I don't know about you, I've had to work on public jobs. One of the greatest blessings in my life is not having to work on a public job at this stage in my life. I hated it, man. I was terrible at it. I was, uh, me and my wife, we went into the bank today, and uh, I, I was picking it. We were at, at the bank, and I was picking at the girls. She said, you know, they have to say this. She said, are you interested in credit cards? Or no, no, no. She said, how do you feel about credit cards? And she just waited, and I, and I thought for a minute, and I said, I'm pretty hostile towards them. How do you feel about them? And she didn't know what to say. And, uh, you know, uh, she said, well, why are you hostile towards them? I said, ma'am, I am 28 years old, and me and my wife just bought uh, our, our last home that we'll ever live in. And the only reason is twofold. One is the grace of God, and two is that I run from credit cards like they're a cold snake. And uh, she said, well, you know, sometimes you need them and this and that. And I said, no, I understand. I said, I'm, I'm sort of picking at you, but we, we're not interested right now. We walked out the door, and I looked at Leah. I said, boy, I hated dealing with jerks like me when I used to work. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I bet they hate it too. I said, yeah, you're probably right. And I used to hate that, man, when I worked on a public job. I had some, I had some crummy bosses too. I had bosses that tried to get me fired because they didn't like the fact that I that my schedule was hard for them to figure out because I had to be at church function. Here I am leaving leaving my job to go and pray with folks at death's door, and, and that made them upset. That made them angry. Well, that's how a lost person is. They don't understand it. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes when you work on a public job. But what does he say? Notice the requirement in verse 18, be subject to your masters. And he denotes this. He says, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. I want you to notice, number one, we're supposed to do it with regard to our employer's dues, with all fear. That word fear denotes reverence and respect. Uh, let me just say this in a very practical way. it do you well to learn how to reverence the people that are in authority above you. 
We were talking, we were sitting around on the porch the other day, and Brother Kerry was sitting there. We were having kind of an Easter thing, and all the kids are just running around like crazy. And, and uh, you know, his little boy Levi goes to run by, and, and uh, Brother Kerry said, you know, now you shut that door behind you. And he said, okay. And Brother Kerry said, yes, sir. And Levi said, yes, sir. And, uh, you know, they, he, he went on by and dad sort of chuckled. He said, well, he'll get it one of these days. You know, he'll, he'll get it one of these days, meaning saying yes, sir, and no, sir. We started to talk about what, what the importance of that. You know, that's a lost thing in society anymore. People say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And, uh, one of the comments that we made is, you know, one of these days, he may be sitting in a room of a hundred people, and out of a hundred people, he may be the only one saying yes, sir, no, sir. And that may mean the difference between getting a job and not getting a job. That's just the truth. You know, that's just the reality of it. You know, employers, they, they have an authority over us, whether we like it or not. So we need to treat them with all fear, meaning with all reverence. But then he says, with regard to our employer's disposition, you say, yeah, but you don't know how my boss is. Well, Peter knew about him because he said not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. <laughs> you know what that word froward means? It means cantankerous. Difficult, hard to deal with. I've had a few of those at times. <laughs> I'm thankful that the boss I've got now is the greatest in the world. But I've had times that, well, he's not in this world. He's not of this world. But but I've had times in my life, man, I've had them guys. It's just tough to deal with. Uh, let me tell you, there's no one more unhappy in the world than, than like a middle-aged person that's still in middle management, you know. And I, hey, I, and not all of them have to be that way, but I've met some of them before, you know. And you can just tell life did not turn out how they hoped, and they're going to let everybody know about it. I've dealt with people like that. I've had to, but you know what the Lord's exhortation is: submit yourselves, be subject to your masters with all fear, regardless of whether you've got a good boss or a bad boss. We understand that our real boss, our true boss is a benevolent one, the one that's truly in control of the situation. He denotes the requirement, but he denotes the reasons for that. Notice what it says in the next couple of verses. He says, For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. He denotes the persecution factor. He says, you know, there may be times that you have to endure things that are not fair, but God takes account of it. God notices it, and God's pleased with it. Now, he also denotes the provocation factor. He says, for what glory is it? If when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. In other words, don't think you're some kind of martyr. If you show up 20 minutes late for work and get written up, don't act like you're some kind of martyr, you know. But at times when just being a Christian is enough to draw the disdain and the fiery darts of the world and of the devil, then count it a thankworthy thing. You know why it's thankworthy? Because God is thankful for it. God sees it, and God's pleased with it, and God takes note of it. Let me tell you something. Every tear we've ever wept, he takes, he scoops up, he places in a bottle. He pays attention to our problems and our pain. And in light of that, he says, what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Isn't that interesting, that phrase, acceptable with God? You say, what does God expect out of me when I'm in that situation? Just to take it patiently. To take it patiently. You know why? Because He's taking a tally of everything that's happening, of everything that's going... Just take it patiently, and God will be your bulwark, and God will be your revenge, and God will be your shelter. He says that we need to submit as servants, but then He denotes that we need to submit as saints. So not only is it our civic duty as citizens, we are to be subject, and as servants, there being a, a hierarchy, a structure of authority in society. But now he turns more to the spiritual element, and he says, as Christians, we have a responsibility to be subject to authorities in this world. And he speaks first of our calling. He says, for even hereunto were ye called. There's lots of folks, they, you know, they talk about God's calling on their life. I believe I'm called into the ministry. I believe I'm called to be a preacher. Uh, I, I've met some folks that they had to be called to do anything. I remember I went to somebody one time and I said, you know, hey, we're, we're you know, we're having some kind of class. I can't remember even what it was, but I, I, it was a young man and I went to him. I said, we're having, you know, this class. I'd like for you to teach it and everything. He said, well, brother, I'm just not sure if I'm called to. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm calling you. Amen. <laughs> 
I know some folks, they got to be called to take the trash out. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they got to be called to scrub dishpans. I mean, they everything, they got to pray about it. You know, am I called to do that? Well, here's something you're called to do, to endure suffering and to endure it submissively. I want you to notice the great example he points to. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. His example is stated. Notice first off how focused that it was. He suffered what? For us. Christ knew why he was suffering. He understood why he was suffering. He was aware of the purpose behind it. You know, that will go a long way to helping you in situations like that. If you'll just keep in mind that, that, that the trials that we go through, that the affliction that we endure, it's light affliction, it's but for a moment, and it, and, and it worketh for us a, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, it'll help you to get through those things. Let me tell you, I've had times in my life when people have had, I, I mean, people just set their sights on me to hurt me, to try to tear me down, to try to destroy me. And, I, and I'm not talking about in the church, amen. I mean, there's been a few of those too, but I'm talking about in the secular world. I, I have had that happen. Sometimes, I guess it was because I was a Christian. Sometimes probably because I was so good looking. I don't know why they did it, but they, uh, you're supposed to laugh when I said that, amen. I know you wanted to, so you might as well. But during those times, I just had to remind myself that, uh, you know, it's not me that they hate, it's Christ in me. Christ, And he told me it would be that way. Notice how uh, it is focused for us. He suffered for us. He knew what it was he was suffering for. But notice that it is not only focused for us, but it is to be followed by us. What does he say? Leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Uh, when he uses the word example, Paul used this same terminology when he talked about uh, it, it has the idea of being an imitator. And when he talked about, you know, following him as he followed Christ. In other words, we're to look at Christ's pattern, Christ's example, and we are to adopt and appropriate that example for our lives. Well, let's take a moment and look at it. What is the example? We'll look at verse number 22. Uh, I want you to notice his total perfection. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. You know the first thing that you ought to set in order if you're going through a time of suffering? Make sure that all sin that is in your life has been confessed, repented of, and dealt with. I found this to be true, that I have a lot harder time going through suffering when there's that nagging feeling in the back of my mind that it may not be persecution, it might just be chastisement. I wish I could tell you I always knew the difference, but sometimes I don't. <laughs> and that's not a real hyper-spiritual answer, that's just a personal anecdote. Sometimes I have trouble, sometimes I think, Lord, why are you putting me through this? Why am I going through this? Sometimes I think, well, maybe God's trying to perfect me, but then sometimes I think, well, maybe God's trying to purge me and get some things out of my life. What do you do? How do you remedy that? Well, you confess and repent of sin. You ask the Lord to take it away from you, and He will, He'll take it away from you. The example that's given to us is the Lord Jesus Christ. But then I would say this, that when we meet suffering, we should not take it as an excuse to live wrong and to do wrong. When the Bible says that he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, you know what that word guile means? It means deceit. You remember when, uh, and we actually we mentioned it last week, that when Christ uh, saw Nathaniel, he said, Behold, an Israelite in, indeed in whom is no guile, meaning no deceit. You know what that means? Nathaniel didn't play no games with anybody. He just was who he was. He wasn't playing politics. He, he didn't have a chess match going on in his mind and his heart. Every time he interacted with someone, he just was who he was. This is something God is, is trying to and having to teach me. When you first start pastoring, you walk and you tread so carefully that you learn to put a mask on. And let me tell you something. A lot of pastors' marriages and homes are ruined because of the mask that he forces his family to wear. You know, his wife can never get her feelings hurt. His boy can never act up or his, his little girl can never act up. They, they never get put out. They never get frustrated. They're not, you know, everybody else can. Everybody else can dog them and walk them like a, like a cheap rug, but they're not allowed to because they have to, to rise above. And, and listen, I'm aware that a pastor needs to be an example and an end sample of those saints. But I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, if you came to Wall Ridge because it's got a perfect pastor, you might as well go ahead and turn around and head on back out the door. Because Wall Ridge does not have a perfect pastor. And I'm human. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I get in the flesh. And sometimes I get irritated. And sometimes I get frustrated. 
And uh, you know, if it, it, listen, if, if I if I ever am ugly towards you, it, don't take it personal because it's probably not you. But but don't investigate too much because it just might be you. Amen. I don't know. <laughs> but that's tough sometimes, you know. That's tough sometimes. And I know pastors, they expect that out of their wives, man. Their wives have to walk around with a mask all the time. And one of the things I've told my wife is, you know, go ahead and be human. If they won't love you when you're human, then we need to just pack up and move on anyway. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to wreck my marriage just so so that everybody thinks my wife walks around, uh, you know, on cloud nine. I have the most precious wife that God ever put a breath in. She's human, just like I'm human. And the fact is, there's times that you'll get into that game, you'll get guile in your mouth and in your speech, and you'll start wearing the mask and playing the games. The Lord Jesus never did that. He was always 100% totally honest in compassion with people. He didn't play those games. Notice not only his total perfection, but notice his triumphant persuasion. It says, who when he was reviled, what did he do? He reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You imagine, he could have. You remember in the garden, whenever uh, Peter, he pulls the sword out and he whacks off that fella's ear, and uh, the Lord turns around and he looks at him and he says, that do you not think that right now there are not six legions of angels waiting, and I could just command them? He says, put up your sword, for this hour came I into the world the Roman legion, or twelve legions, excuse me, of, of angels, and each of those legions was about 6,000, 72,000 angels. One angel had enough power to slay all of Sennacherib's army in one night, 180-some thousand soldiers. One angel could do that. He had enough power to destroy creation, start all over, and not even break a sweat. But he said that for this hour came I, into the world. When he was threatened, he threatened not again, but what did he do? He committed himself uh, to him that judgeth righteously. You know what he said? He said, Father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And after that was said, what need did he have to fret? He was in the perfect will of his precious Father. Boy, the same could be said about us, too, couldn't it? What need do we have to bluster about, to, to, to buck our shoulders up, to try to be the big man? If God be for us, who can be against us? Let's just commit ourselves unto him that judgeth righteously. He shows us uh, the Lord's great example, but he shows us the great expiation that takes place. Look at verse number 24. What did he do? Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. He points first off to how he died for our sins. He bare his own, his own self, he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. We didn't deserve that. And he didn't deserve that. But he took what we deserved and he gave us what he deserved. That's the way he met suffering. Once he had committed himself to the Father, and I understand his will was never out of disharmony with God the Father. I'm aware of that. But still, there's a reason that he prayed, not my will, but thy will. It wasn't to teach us that his will was different than the Father's will, but it was to show us that even if his will had been different than the Father's will, he would have still submitted and surrendered, and he would have done that. Though he were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which he suffered. He left us an example that in the midst of the greatest suffering that humanity, that divinity, that time, that eternity has ever known, he bowed his head and he bowed his knee and he he said, Father, not my will, but thy will. Now, if he can do that, then we can do that. If he can do that, then we can do that. He points out how he died for our sins, but he points out how we die to our sins. He says this, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. There's two interesting things here, and I know that I need to hurry. I need to move on. But I do want to mention these things. First, he notes how that we deal with suffering, how that we approach it. We approach it as a dead man. We've been crucified. We've been laid to rest. Our old man has been done away with. He has been laid low by the cross of Calvary. And this new life that we have now, this life belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And if He would take us through the fires, His will be done. If He would take us through the flood, His will be done. If He'd take us through the darkness, then His will be done. Our will has been laid to rest on Calvary. Now the will that we have ought to be surrendered unto Him. But He acknowledges this, that even as we do that, we're going to get hurt. So you know what He says? By whose stripes you were healed. He denotes not only His ability to have healed, but His ability to heal in our lives. When we suffer those blows, and by the way, that word for stripes is very interesting. It's found only here in the New Testament. And uh, it denotes not just the idea of of, uh, punitive lashing, but the idea of being smitten and being struck out of anger. And you know what he's saying? He's saying when sin dealt its fatal blow towards us, Christ took that blow. And as society strikes its blows against us, He's still able to absorb those blows. He's still able to heal us and to soothe us. He denotes these things. Then finally in verse 25, He denotes our conversion. I'm going to move past it very fast, but He says, For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. There's a lot of things I would love to say about it, but I will say only this, that back then we were out of the fold. But now we're in the fold. Back when we, before we was saved, back when we was lost, we weren't under the shepherd's care. He was out looking for us. He was traversing, coming for us. But now we're safe within the fold. So what need have we to fear? Look over at chapter three. Let's look at a few verses here before we close. He denotes our uh, formal obligations, but then he changes the tone and says a word about our family obligations. Now. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to move through this quick, but it's not because I'm scared of the ladies. Amen? I promise you. It's just because I think so much of this we teach on, we preach on, and there's some things to be said about it, but I don't want to say everything to be said about it because we say a lot about it anyway. But notice what he says in the first few verses. Let's read the first six verses. He says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the in the heart or of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Notice the first thing he points to is the attitude that wives are to take. He says that it is to be an attitude of subjection, that uh, if they have a lost husband, that they might, through their obedience with their chaste conversation and their fear, meaning reverence and respect, that they might win that lost individual. The first thing, there's a requirement. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Let me just say this, just because I like to say this when I come to this passage, that I think every pastor needs to hear it well when it says be in subjection to your own husbands. See, a lot of mischief and nonsense go on in churches because wives were expected to be submissive to the the pastor's wife's husband <laughs> as opposed to their husband. Amen? Uh, listen, I'm not talking. I'm not talking just about impurity. We've seen some of that happen too. But I've seen times when the pastor wants to take control and take the place of the husband in the home, and I think that is one of the most damaging things that a pastor pastor can do, either for his church or for the families that are within his church. But uh, beyond that, and I always like to just denote that before I say the other things about this passage. That word subjection. I know that there's a part of the hair of everyone's neck that stands up, men and women alike, because we're trained in our culture and our society to not value and appreciate that aspect. Uh, women are treated as though they are weak and ignorant and, and, and ignorant and empty-headed if they are in subjection to their husband. I would only propose this to you. You have a decision, ladies, to make. Do you believe what the world says about who you are? Do you believe what God says about who you are? If we believe the Word of God to be inspired, now I believe it's inspired, I believe it's inerrant, I believe it's infallible, and I believe it's just exactly what it ought to be. And I think that if God had wanted to say, let them be in compromise, he would have said be in compromise, but he didn't, he said be in subjection. Now, that shouldn't be an offense. Here's why, because that's merely God's structure and order for the home. 
He's going to talk about the dynamics in a moment. But I'll tell you this, as long as we bucket that word, as long as we stall when we come to that word, we'll always have trouble. We'll always have trouble. That could be said of any portion of the word of God. But it seems as though there's not really much other portion that people buck at the way they bucket that word, subjection. We understand it's not always pleasant. In fact, the example that Peter gives is not of a perfect home, but it's of a difficult home. Notice the reasons. It says this, that if any obey not the word. Now, he's not talking about the wife. He's talking about the husband. Saying, if the husband obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. I know there will always be some will say, Preacher, you don't know what my husband's like. You know, you don't, he's a scoundrel, he's mean, he's, he, he's cruel, he's critical. You don't know what he's like. Well, he may be all those things, but he's not blind. And he's not deaf. And he can still see the way that you live. And he can still hear the way that you speak with him. I understand. I didn't expect it to be popular. But it's the truth of the Word of God. In other words, that husband that's so cruel, and by the way, there's a thousand examples in society. We could go through anecdote after anecdote of some rotten, miserable scoundrel that didn't deserve even the the gunk under his wife's toenails. But because the wife loved God, subjected herself, surrendered unto him, but really surrendered unto the Lord in surrendering unto him, that through that God was able to work in that husband's Life. Let me say this, there is another side to that coin. I've seen men driven from the house of God because of the way that their wives behaved. I'm talking about lost men, saved women. And the women have driven the husband from the house of God because of the way that they've acted. Because they thought because their husband didn't live the way the preacher did or didn't live the way the deacon lived or didn't live the way the Sunday school teacher lived, that that gave them an, an excuse to treat them with irreverence. Well, what does God say about it? God says that scoundrel, that unsaved man, that he ought to be able to behold your chaste conversation. You know what chaste means? It means restraint. Restraint. Ladies, are there ever times when you have to exercise restraint? (laughs) Sure there are. Chaste conversation. That word conversation does not just denote our language, but it denotes our lifestyle. That lifestyle of restraint. That because they see that, and that coupled with their fear, meaning reverence, meaning respect, that the husband sees something in them that he does not see in himself. The reasons are given. Her attitude. All right, we're all okay, right? Everybody, everybody take a deep breath. Everybody okay, all right? He denotes her attitude, but then he denotes her attire. <laughs> Verses 3 and 4, he says this, Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, there's lots of folks take this to mean that a woman ought not pretty herself up. And I've had people ask me before, Preacher, do you believe in makeup? I, depending on what she looks like, I, I may really believe in makeup. Amen? I mean, I, listen, I've, I've seen some that ought to take some off, but I've seen some that need to put a lot more on, too. I don't think God is condemning the outward beautification, but he is rather showing in juxtaposition that that outward beautification is really not what God's interested in. We tell our teenage girls all the time, we've got teenage girls, right? I mean, we ain't got hardly any boys in the youth group. we got teenage girls, and we tell them all the time, listen, if all they're interested in is the outward, then that's all they're interested in. It's all they're ever going to be interested in. And as soon as you don't look that way, they're going to move on to somebody else that does look that way. Uh, no, what God is saying here is that there is something more important than that outward representation. And what is it? It's the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Now, ladies, you don't have to say amen to this, but I think a few of you all might say amen. How many of you all know that that outward appearance, it's corruptible? Right? Go ahead and laugh with me, Linda. That's okay. Yeah, it's corruptible. It's corruptible. You reach a place where your hair don't do what it used to do, where your eyes don't do what they used to do. You know, you use a place where you're, you you got to zip tie yourself to keep yourself with enough ground clearance. You know, that's life, right? Corruptible, corruptible. It's part of it. It's part of it. Why well, spend all that time on the outward? Ladies, don't y'all laugh sometimes when you see the way the young women spend so much time getting themselves gussied up? 
Did you ever reach a time? You and and nobody say amen to this because I know you don't want to anyway. But did you ever reach a place in your life where you looked in the mirror and said, you know, I just don't care no more? <laughs> hey, if I'm gonna go down, I'm gonna go down in flames. All right, I don't care. It's corruptible. It fades away. What does it matter? But you know what doesn't fade away? Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. In other words, you know what ladies ought to be more concerned about? How they look in the sight of God instead of in the sight of other men. Would to God we could really teach our young women that. That how they look in the eyes of God is of far supreme importance than how they look in the eyes of some teenage boy. That's what they need to be concerned with. He denotes their attire. Then he denotes their attainment in verses 5 and 6. He says, For after this manner, in the old time the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. In other words, you know what he's saying? He's saying those holy women of God of old days that you read about in the Old Testament, there's more concern with the inside than the outside. You ever watch westerns? Sure. You ever watch westerns and think, didn't nobody look like that back then? <laughs> you ever watch Big Valley? You know, and they got that, that woman, I don't, I don't know her name, I've just seen a handful of times, but here she is, she's walking around the, the frontier in high heels and full-on makeup and her hair is all done up and everything. You think, didn't nobody look like that back then? Most people walking around didn't have a tooth in their head. They look like an old catcher's mitt walking around out on the frontier. You know? <laughs> That's how women looked back then. That's how men looked back then. Everybody was ugly. Everybody stunk. People bathed once a month. You know, you couldn't get within 30 feet of somebody except you'd smell them. Those holy women old, they didn't worry too much about getting the makeup on. They didn't worry too much about getting their hair done just right. I'm not saying those things are wrong. and I don't believe God's saying those things are wrong either. But he's saying this. They understood the value of the inner man. And the importance that it was to adorn and to beautify that part which only God himself can see. And then verse number 6. If you all didn't like that before, you really ain't going to like this. It says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Boy, that's tough. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If ever, if ever there's a verse that ain't going to be preached in a Baptist church, it is 1 Peter 3.6. Called him Lord. That's what the Bible says. It says it right there. It's what my Bible, did your Bible say that? Called him Lord. I don't think that's denoting that Sarah trembled in fear at Abraham's presence, nor do we see that to be the example. But what it's saying is this, she reverenced him. When he was right, she reverenced him. When he was wrong, she reverenced him. She reverenced him not because he was right, not because he was wrong, not because he was so great or so handsome. He was an old man. But evidently her beauty was far uh, far below her years because when she went to Egypt, the, the, uh, the Pharaoh longed to take her into his harem. And here she is, 60-year-old woman, <laughs> you know, and uh, she's so beautiful that, I, I mean, in other words, she was a catch. And Abraham, if I had to guess, probably like most fellas at that time, he probably was not the, the sleek-looking, you know, uh, Esquire magazine fella. He didn't do it because... She didn't do it because he was handsome. She didn't do it because he was right. She didn't. You know why she did it? Because he was her husband. That's why. It's very simple. He was married to her. She was married to him. Because of that, she reverenced him. There's an interesting thought and truth here as well, though. You know, she called him Lord. You know what he called her? You'll find this in your Bible. He called her princess. You know that? He did. That's what Sarah means. It's denoting that betwixt the two of them, there was a love and a reverence and a respect. You know, that's God's picture of the home. That's what God wants in the home. He goes on to talk about the men. He, he denotes the wife as the heart of the home. But verse number 7, the men are not left out. He denotes the husband as the head of the home. But notice what he says. Likewise ye husband. Now, likewise. Let's not skip over that word likewise. He's saying, all right, that ladies, that may have been a hard pill for you all to swallow, but it's the Word of God, and you need to do it, and you need to obey it, because that's right. Amen? And then he looks at the men, and he says, well, guess what? Here's the Word of God and the will of God for you. And it's not all as sugar-coated and as easy as it might appear at first. He says this, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. What does that mean? Well, some people might say, well, if she likes Wendy's, go to Wendy's. You know if she likes Wendy's. Amen? 
If you know she likes yellow roses instead of red roses, get her yellow roses. You ought to dwell with her according to knowledge. Certainly, men, it, it behooves us to learn our wives and to learn them well, but I don't think that's what Peter is saying. He says this, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. You know what he's saying when he says dwell with them according to knowledge? He's saying always keep in mind that it is their responsibility to subject and to submit. And as such, there is a great responsibility on your shoulders. In other words, men, we can walk around and bluster and, and yell and whoop and holler and pound our fist and get our way, but uh, <laughs> that, that precious wife of ours, she has a Savior that we're going to answer to one day. And it may be her responsibility to submit and to, to subject herself to us, but don't mistake for one moment that we will be accountable for the way that we treat her, the way that we reverence her, the way that we behave. It says honoring her, honoring the wife. Why? Keeping in mind that even if you're wrong, it is still God's will for her to submit. So you know what that ought to do? It ought to give us an extra emphasis to make sure we're not wrong in what we're doing. In other words, my wife, and, and she'd tell you this if she was here, and and you know her and you have her phone number. I, you can call her if you don't believe me. But she'd tell you, you know, Sarah, Sarah obeyed Abraham even when Abraham led her out of the will of God. God didn't judge Sarah for that. God judged Abraham for that. You say, what did she need to do? Should she have followed? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. She should have followed. But Abraham, he better walk lightly and walk carefully because it's going to be on him if he leads her out of the will of God. Dwell with them according to knowledge, honoring them because they're the weaker vessel. It's not denoting their inferiority. You know what it's denoting? He's saying, you better dwell with them according to knowledge because you have the authority over them. What is a vessel? A vessel is something that's, that's used for a certain purpose. It fits a role. Am I right? It has a role. It has a function. It has a purpose. And the wife being the, the second person in the home, being secondary in the home, having that place in the home, the husband ought to take very careful consideration of that in how he makes his decisions. That he might be burdening her with doing something, and she may be willing, and it may be the will of God for her to do it, and to buck up, and to do the right thing, and to submit, and, and to subject herself unto him. But he better be, be careful, because one day he's going to answer to God for the way that he has ran his home. Listen, I, I, I have a precious wife, and she, she is an obedient wife. And, and I don't think that's anything to scorn. Do you? I don't think that's anything to scorn. There's been times I've been wrong. She's obeyed me anyway. And guess what? When that happened, I may have been wrong, but she was right. She was right. Because she obeyed the Lord in obeying me. Now, again, I'm not implying, women, that, that you need to participate in active sin at the request of your husband. I'm not implying that. You know I'm not implying that. But what I am saying is this to the husbands. You need to understand that in what you're asking your wife to do, you may be asking her to do something that she feels is not the right thing to do, that she even knows is not the direction that your family needs to go. And it's not going to be her that answers to God for it. It's going to be you that answers to God for it. He says a few things. You can Take the time to look at it. Be considerate, cooperative, and careful. But it all boils down to the fact that we're to dwell with them according to knowledge, uh, honor and giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I want to say a lot about that, but I'm, I don't have time. That your prayers be not hindered. Well, I wonder how many of us have prayed for something and got no answer to God because of the way we've been treating our wife. Wonder how many of us been praying, asking God for something. God's not going to hear us till we hear her. Hmm. He denotes our fellowship obligations in the next few verses. Look at verse number eight. <laughs> he says this. Finally, somebody say amen to that. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good, let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. 
but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? He denotes our fellowship obligations. And he says, number one, we're to be submissive in our conduct one to another. And he, he goes down a big laundry list. He says uh, that we're to have one mind. One mind. doesn't mean we always have to agree, but it doesn't mean we have to let our disagreements uh, destroy our unity with each other. Now, again, I'm not saying that there, there's times that the unity, the contention is so sharp that we must part ways. And I believe in those situations, it'd be the will of God that we part ways instead of staying and compromising what God expects of us. But, you know, we treat it like there's a lot of situations like that, and there's really not within a local body. Most local churches, they split over what color the new carpet's going to be or, or, or what color the drapes are going to be or what color we're going to paint the nursery. Peter says, that's a bunch of nonsense. Just be all of one mind. Just be all of one mind. He says we're to be compatible. We're to be compassionate, having compassion one of another. Compassion is the the willingness to be emotionally inconvenienced for the sake of another. In other words, we're willing to hurt because someone else hurts. We're willing to weep because someone else weeps. He says we're to be caring in the next phrase. Love as brethren. Supposed to be a family what the local body is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a family. It's supposed to love one another the same way that you would family. I know this, that, uh, you know, with my family, and maybe your family is different. I know a lot of families get in situations like this, but I know with my family, we may disagree about a lot of things. We're always family. You know, that's just the way it is. There's been times I've been out of the will of God, times that my sister has, times my brother has, probably times that my parents have. Uh, but you know what? We're still family. Still loved each other. That didn't go away. That didn't change. We still loved each other. There's been times we've said things both intentionally and unintentionally to hurt each other. Guess what? Still family. You know, would to God that the local church would be that way. You know, it. everybody's always just waiting on the precipice of getting their feelings hurt. Would to God that we'd say, well, I may not be happy with it, but they're family, so I'm going to love them anyway. He says that we're to be caring. He says we're to be comforting. He says we're to be pitiful full of pity, full of sympathy. Boy, let me tell you something. Hell loves a critic and a cynic. It's the truth. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to be critical. Easy to be jaded. You ever met one of those people that, I mean, the sky was always just about to fall, and they knew it? And so the slightest little thing that went wrong, they said, told you so. You know, and it didn't matter whether, I mean, let me tell you something. If you say that that somebody in this room is going to have a hard day tomorrow, guess what? I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but you're not a prophet. That's just a reality. But I've known people like that. Well, I know something bad's going to happen today. They get a knot in their shoelaces. Well, I told you. You know, hell loves a cynic. You know, God loves people that are pitiful and piteous towards one another. People that are willing to... Maybe give someone the benefit of a doubt. Maybe wait till they've heard the whole matter before they make their mind up. I think that's what the Lord is interested in in His people. We're to be comforting. We're to be courteous. He says, be courteous. <laughs> be courteous. Don't be rude. And I, you know, I don't know what it is. And, and I, I will be the first to tell you that I sometimes have a rude streak in me. In case you didn't know it about that little bank anecdote earlier. <laughs> I have a tendency to be rude sometimes. But let me say this, and I hope that you'll take this in the right spirit. But as people get older, they lose their filter. Let me tell you something. I've heard old people say things that have just made my mouth drop. I can't believe they just said that. You know? Just say ugly things, rude things. Just walk up. Somebody, I mean, somebody just stand there, mind their own business, and... And somebody walk up to them, just say something rude and mean and hateful for no reason whatsoever. I mean, if their head had fallen off and rolled down the center aisle, it would have surprised me less than that did. Sometimes people get older, they lose that filter, you know. We ought to make a consistent and conscious effort to be courteous to each other. Be kind. You'd be amazed how much easier life would be if you'd learn just to think of others first. And to be courteous one to another. And then he says we're to be conciliatory. And I, and I don't have time to deal with all of it, but he says it's not rendering evil for evil. So if somebody does you wrong, don't do them wrong back. Or railing for railing. That means somebody flies into you. Don't fly back into them. Don't criticize them. But what do we do? But contrarywise, blessing. Blessing. Somebody criticizes you, bless them. And I don't mean like bless them out. Amen. 
I mean, bless them. Be kind towards them. Be kind towards them. He says we are to be submissive in our conduct. He says we're to be sanctified in our conversation. Verse 10, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from them, uh, his lips that they speak no guile. In other words, you ought to watch your tongue. This is coming from Peter. Probably the greatest failure in Peter's life was when he sat beside the world's fires and slandered the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows how much damage the tongue can do. He says you ought to be careful how you speak to one another. You ought to be careful how you live, but also you ought to be careful how you communicate with one another. And then he says we're to be saintly in our character. And he quotes one of David's psalms, and and I'll let you study it in your own time, but there is a basic simple thing that David is saying here. Let him eschew evil and do good. In other words, don't get into trouble, stay out of trouble. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Don't go looking for trouble, go looking for peace. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God's watching over what we're doing. And then look at verse 13. He gives us a basic principle. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Now we understand, especially even in the context of what Peter is writing here, they're being persecuted, some of them because they are Christians. This is not a blanket promise of God that if you try to do right, no one's ever going to harm you. Certainly there are plenty. I mean, to open a newspaper, get get on the internet, read the news. Every day there are people, just, I think it was yesterday, a, a suicide bomber uh, blew himself up on, in, in a park in, in Punjab in Pakistan, killed 70 women and children. It's not to say that no one will ever be, but you know what he is saying? He's saying this, trouble follows those that look for it. That's what he's saying. Say, if you'll make your mind up to live right and to do right, you'll find more often than not the God of peace will walk with you and you'll not have the kind of trouble. I know some people that are martyrs, but I know some people that are just cantankerous. I mean, I've known people that really, they they did everything they could, they did everything right, but the devil just had a, a target on their back. But I know some people that think the devil has a target on their back and really they just don't know how to get along with folks. Really, they just go looking for problems and drama. Well, you know what Peter says? He says, you know, you'll make up your mind to live right, to do right, and to be a submissive Christian and husband or wife or or, or child or, or citizen or whatever it might be, whatever walk of life you're in. If you'll let the Lord be your portion, then you'll find that it'll bring good things to your life and your days. 